This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Good day to you, citizen. There he is. How is, uh, how is the weather in Monticello? It's a beautiful time of year. The crops are beginning to emerge from the red soil of Virginia and gives me a great sense of hope. You know, I may even get out of debt this year if I have a bubble crop. <laughs> what is your favorite meal, by the way? I'm going to ask you about a, about politics. I'm going to put it off for a minute here because I don't want to. Uh, tell me what your favorite dish is if you were coming to my house for dinner. Well, I wouldn't dictate to you, of course, but if you came to my house for dinner, I would serve a profusion of Virginia meats and vegetables and breads and and, and sweets and so on. Uh, people were always thrilled to get invitations to come to my home at Monticello or to dinner at the White House in Washington, D.C. But, but I'm essentially a vegetarian, not strictly. I do eat meat, but I always said I wanted my meat to serve as sauce to my vegetables and not the other way around. So when I'm when I'm happiest, I'm eating a dish of peas. <laughs> it's a sentence I don't think I've heard before. Um, maybe maybe I would serve you some uh, spaghetti with uh, meat sauce. Have you ever had spaghetti before? You know, I bought a macaroni machine when I was in northern Italy. I spent just a, a few days in Italy, a great number of years in France, and I went as far as Milan, and I studied the making of Parmesan cheese, and I bought a macaroni machine this was a time when Northern Europe was just beginning to understand pasta. Now, pasta is an Italian word for paste. And the idea that you could take a dough and, and squeeze it through some sort of an engine and turn it into a noodle. Now, this was still a relatively uh, innovative and new thing in Northern Europe and the United States. So huh. I've had a little of this spaghetti, but it was a pretty avant-garde. All right, that's all well and good, but now I have to go from that to something more pressing, current, and serious. Let's start with this. Did you all have these primaries and caucuses the way we do now? Well, there were no conventions in my time. There were barely caucuses, uh, no primaries. Uh, there, were, there was no nomination process. So in, in 1800, for example, a group of small R Republicans in the Congress came to me. I was the sitting vice president of the United States and said they would like me to stand for the presidency in 1800. It's not something I particularly wanted to do, but I slowly came to terms with it and agreed. But that was it. That was the whole nomination process. And then I spent the entire campaign at Monticello minding my own business. And in the autumn, uh, everybody voted in different ways in different states, and it became clear that I had defeated John Adams in the Electoral College 73 to 65. And so that was the, the sum total of the process in my time. My only advice to you is that you must acquiesce in the will of the people. The people yeah. don't always make the choices that the experts or the establishment want, but it's in the interest of everybody to bow to the will of the people. It's a mighty engine. And in our culture, the people have a right to be governed in the way that suits them. There you go again. That's sort of the way you spoke to us last week, even though I don't like Donald Trump, and I'm not sure you would either. You were, you know, saying that we need to honor the process and be patient. And 
<laughs> I think that's that's just watching a slow train wreck coming right at you. <laughs> well, what's the point of having the process? So in your time, you have these primaries. You have 50 states. In my time, I presided over 17, and there were no primaries, no conventions, not really even formal caucuses, not really even formal parties yet, just the, the very beginnings of what would become a two-party system, and uh, I became the third president of the United States. In your time, you have an almost infinitely more elaborate system of primaries and what I guess are called superdelegates and so on, caucuses in some states, and this is meant to distill from the great number of aspirants to the nomination, the one that has the has the credibility with the American people, or at least the people of, of his party. And so why would you create this elaborate apparatus that takes months to unfold and then say, Oh, we don't like we don't like the result of it, so we're just going to find somebody else? Uh, that would seem to deny the very purpose of your nomination system. Yeah, well, this, uh, I don't know if your question is rhetorical. I, maybe it's not. I think the the purpose of it originally and the rules that are embedded in it now are to keep some sort of rogue candidate from coming forward. It was to protect the establishment. Now the establishment is threatened by its own rules. A, a rogue candidate might win. They're actually talking about changing the rules for this upcoming convention in the summer for the Republicans to keep Donald Trump from actually winning the nomination. It would be a terrible thing to do from a number of points of view, but you know, there's nothing sacred about it. These processes are not in the Constitution itself. All that the Constitution requires is that in the autumn of every fourth year, the electors uh, vote in their state capitals uh, to uh, name the person that they most want to be president and the person they second most want to be president, and then the votes are tallied. And once they're tallied, the person who wins is the president of the United States. Now, in my case, there was a tie. I tied with 73 electoral votes with my running mate, Eric Burr, and that produced a constitutional crisis. But it wasn't a crisis of the nomination process. It was a, an imprecision in the way that the Constitution had been written. And we soon passed the 12th Amendment to prevent that from ever happening again. That is the uh, first, uh, the, the second vote getter is the vice president. That's no longer the way we do it. No, because in my day, uh, in 1796, uh, John Adams became the second president of the United States because he had the largest number of electoral votes. But And I wasn't even a candidate, but I received the second largest number of electoral votes. And so I became his vice president, even though we disagreed about almost everything. In other words, he didn't get a running mate. He got an opposition figure serving as the <laughs> vice president of the United States. That's how it works because it wasn't there was no party system. The founding fathers, and I was not one of them, who met in Philadelphia had created a new constitution, but they thought there would never be parties in the United States. So the 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 election was to be the for the most respected person in the country, and then the second most respected yeah. person. Well, and it's possible that, um, you know, a Donald Trump would pick a Ted Cruz or a Ted Cruz would pick a John Kasich or one of those guys. I mean, a scenario like that could play out. But so How then that you, happen after the, they've treated each other with such <laughs> vulgarity. I, I would think this would end in a duel rather than ask someone to be his vice president. Yeah. Well, everybody wants Ohio and Florida. So I think two of them are going to be in play for a while. Um, 
Well, that's just interesting because uh, then did you would you would Adams call you in and go, hey, what do you think we ought to do about this thing, or would you come to him and actually offer him counsel? Was there civility there? He did just once. So early on, I went in to see him, and we were a little embarrassed because we were opposition figures. We were old dear friends, but we had really begun to see things politically in very different ways. And so I went in to see him, and he said, you know, Mr. Jefferson, I think that you should we should confer often, and and maybe we can almost, in some sense, govern the country together. And and I would like to uh, to to have the the benefit of your wisdom on these things. And then we parted company, and I never talked with him again during the course of his presidency, except in <laughs> ceremonial occasions, because the, the Federalists had gotten to him, and they said, "You can't work with this radical Jefferson. If you do, we'll." will lose respect for you. So you must distance yourself from this atheist. He may be your old friend, but we want nothing to do with him. And so Adams, unfortunately, bowed to the pressure of the partisans in the Federalist Party, and he shut me out. And the same thing happened on my side. I wrote Adams a very generous letter saying, I would like to cooperate with you and if there's anything i can do to be useful to you while you're president you know please call upon me uh, that we may disagree but we disagree as rational friends and so on and i showed that draft to james madison my closest friend and he absolutely forbade me to send it on to adams he said don't do it because this will be used against you the time will come when you have to break with some of his Mm -hmm. crazy ideas and then you will be stuck because as a gentleman, you had offered to cooperate with him. And so I, I quietly filed that draft away and never sent it. I regret it. If I had sent it, the whole history of the next four years might have been different. You know, we fought an undeclared naval war against France in 1798. I think I, if I were in some sense an intimate of Adams, I could have prevented that war from happening. It's funny because um, Ted Cruz, I won't quote him directly here, but in the past week or so, Senator Cruz said something along the lines of uh, sort of the God-given will is is the destiny of the United States. He used God and spoke about the founding fathers as, you know, either aspiring to do God's will or it was God's will that the United States be this sort of, you know, endowed nation. I wonder what you make of them calling up God as they campaign. Uh, A mistake, I would say. You know, I'm a deist. I believe that there is a God who created the solar system, and he spun the planets, and he he developed gravitation, and he made the Earth uh, fertile. You know, it's the one planet that can support life. And he created uh, everything that is, the chain of being from uh, mice at the bottom to mankind at the top of the chain of being and many intervening links between and he created the seasons and the clouds and so on but i don't think that this this great celestial mechanic has any interest in the political life of the united states i don't think he favors the united states over canada or mexico i don't think he favors one candidate over another i don't think he presides in any providential way over the success of the American experiment. Others can disagree with me, but I believe that God is a kind of absentee physicist and that to say that the founding fathers were especially enamored of divine providence is really 
to misunderstand the history. We created a constitution in 1787 that never once mentions God, not in the preamble, not in any of the articles. It is a secular document. If the Founding Fathers had wanted to create a Christian nation, you can be assured that the preamble to the Constitution would have would have had some reference to God, the Creator, or divine providence, and it has none of those. It is silent on the question of God. Does the Declaration of Independence mention it? Yes, I speak of the Creator and nature's God, um, but it's not about providence. Um, what I'm saying is that, that that this being created the universe, and it is a it's meant for human happiness. But I don't think that God answers my prayers when I ask for rain, or answers my prayers when I hope that Mr. Hamilton will become a nicer human being. I don't see <laughs> any intervention through prayer of God's will. This this just strikes me as a as a kind of a form of of, of self serving metaphysics. Your name is in the news, by the way, today. How so? Dateline San Diego at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. So there's a place called San Diego, which is in a place called California. And there's a law school out there with your name on it. The Thomas Jefferson School of Law graduate who spent more than $100,000 for her degree but was not able to find a full-time job as an attorney... Uh, says she relied on false employment figures provided by the school. Excuse me there, my phone was ringing there, Mr. President. I, I, I apologize. Uh, said she uh, relied on um, false employment figures provided by the school. So now she's suing the law school. She spent $100,000 to get a degree there. Now she can't get a job. And she said, well, you guys told me there were plenty of jobs for attorneys, and she can't find one. So she wants her money back, $100,000. Thomas Jefferson Law School. <laughs> well, they- They've already made her litigious. I, mean, I don't suppose they guaranteed a job when they decided to teach her. I mean, there were many. We didn't have law schools in my time. We read for the law. And once you had law, you, you took the bar exam in your state, and then you could be, um, be a certified lawyer. That doesn't mean that people walked through the door and employed us. There must be some place for merit. Not everyone who goes to business school or or wants to be a physicist or an astronomer, actually has the capacity to do it, even if they get through the training. So it would seem to me that this woman has learned litigiousness without learning good sense. Uh, this is not a fair question. If you, um, Here's my last question for you today. Uh, if the candidates were socialist Bernie Sanders or real estate tycoon Donald Trump, who would you vote for? <laughs> I, I'm a kind of a semi-quasi-demi-socialist myself, I believe that there are times when we must redistribute property downward to avoid a French Revolution or another cataclysm of that sort in the United States. And I think the mechanism would be a, a severely graduated income tax. But severely graduated, I, I'm sorry, meaning meaning high? You know, the, the top rate yes. some people would pay under a Sanders administration could be 73%. It would be 73%. I think the American people love property, and they love the idea that they can get rich. Now, that's not my idea of America. My idea of America is that we will be a great society with poetry and architecture and dignity and civility. But I think the, the genius of the American people is for wealth accumulation. So I doubt that they're going to vote for somebody 
who would attempt at least to create uh, such severe tax rates. And I don't think that socialism is something that the American people have much of a of a, an attraction toward. But I would not vote for anybody who was uncivil. So of the two candidates, the one who is the more civil and the more humble and the more likely to say that he's not certain about this issue or that issue will certainly get my vote. Thomas Jefferson's America is distributed by the WGN Plus Podcast Network. You can subscribe on iTunes or hear it on WGNplus.com or the WGN Plus app. Learn more about Clay Jenkinson and how you can book him for an event by going to ClayJenkinson.com. That's J-E-N-K-I-N-S-O-N.com.